Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We just sing about this town of Bethlehem. And we are turning to that Old Testament prophecy about Bethlehem this morning in Micah chapter 5. So I invite you to turn your Bibles there with me. Now in this Advent season, we have been tracing God's promise of salvation through the Old Testament. We looked at God uh, launching this promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. We looked at God's promise to David of a descendant who would sit on his throne and rule his people in everlasting security. I looked at God's promise through Isaiah that the Lord himself would act in the strength of the arm of the Lord and upon the righteousness of his character to save his people from sin and preserve his covenant with them forever. That's what we've seen so far. But today we are turning to one of these more famous Christmas passages in Micah chapter 5. Now, it might be helpful to remember that Micah was prophesying to the kings of Judah at about the same time that Isaiah was. Both Micah and Isaiah challenged Judah for their sin and warned of exile that was coming. But both Micah and Isaiah also held out hope, promising that a shoot would grow again from the chopped off family tree of David. Hope was still alive for an offspring of David who would bring redemption to his people. So that's the hope we come to again this morning. And I would invite you to follow with me as we read Micah chapter 5. We'll read the whole chapter. This is God's word. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." Then he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces as there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. 
And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off carved images in your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. God, this is your word, and I pray that you would give us understanding this morning, an understanding that would magnify Christ in our hearts and draw us to his salvation. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we first articulate our very best ideas, they often face a common question. The common question is usually asked with at least a whiff of skepticism. And the question usually goes something like this. Now, how in the world are you going to make that happen? I think about some of the great ideas of my boyhood. The pencil drawings of the Snowshot 2000 a snowball gun powered with really, really strong rubber bands. Or the idea of turning my old sandbox area into a turtle pond as a refuge for turtles. Now, these were great ideas, but they failed in their execution. I didn't know how to bring them to pass. I think of, of Otto Petschek, the, the Czech industrialist in the early 20th century with his ever-expanding dream for his house which he desired to be the last great palace in Europe, and how every time he would come up with a new grand idea, a team of engineers would hold frantic meetings to try to figure out how to make this plan become reality. Well, in Micah chapter 4, which we did not read this morning, the Lord had announced a plan for Israel. It was a plan to redeem Israel and punish the nations. And the Lord said that he had this plan and he was going to bring this plan about by sending Israel into exile. And I could imagine Israel saying, wait a second, God, you are going to save us by sending us into exile? You're going to punish the nations by exalting them over us? How is that going to work, God? How are you going to bring that plan to pass? And it's here in Micah 5 that God turns to give some of the details of how that plan is going to happen. Now, right up front, we have to know something about Micah's historical context. Judah is at the end of a period of wealth and success, but Assyria is growing ominous. In fact, Assyria is shortly going to march through the land of Judah right up to Jerusalem itself. They're going to put it under siege and issue insults to the king of Judah and to the Lord himself, saying, none could save you from our hand. And Micah chapter 5, verse 1, that we read this morning, perfectly pictures what is about to happen, calling on Jerusalem to muster their troops because a siege is coming in which the judge of Israel will be struck on the cheek or insulted. But the Lord rescued Judah he sent the angel of death who killed 185,000 Assyrians in their sleep. And Sennacherib, their leader, went back home only to be killed by his sons. 
It's a perfect fulfillment again of of the the words of verses 5 and 6 when God says that when the Assyrian comes into your land and treads in your palaces, the Lord will raise up a deliverance for you. But it's important for us to note when we read this prophecy that even though God does rescue Jerusalem from Assyria, as God says here in this passage, this passage doesn't only apply to the attack of Assyria. See, God often uses prophecy to give a hope for the present day, but also to use that scenario to tell about a greater hope that is going to come in a future day. And that's what's happening here in Micah 5. God is telling about a rescue in 8th century BC, but he's using that context to renew his ancient promises and declare that a ruler of old will stand and shepherd Israel. And that's the main point of this passage, that a ruler from old will come to fulfill his promises and shepherd Israel. That, of course, is what Israel was really longing for. And what I want to do in our time today is first see how God renews his old promises here. Then I want to see how he adds some new details to his promises. And then I want to look at the blessings that God says will come when he ultimately fulfills the things he's promised. So that's our plan. Let's let's start by noticing how God renews his promises from of old. Three weeks ago, we saw God launch his promise of redemption to Adam and Eve, promising an offspring of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And God renews this promise here in Micah chapter 5. You see it in verse 2 when God says that a ruler who will come forth for Israel is not going to be a new or unexpected ruler. Rather, he is going to be a ruler from of old, from the ancient days. Now, just to clarify, there are some who read this and think, well, wait a second, God himself is the one who is called the Ancient of Days, and God is said to be from of old, so is Micah indicating that this ruler is going to be everlasting himself like God? And it's a good question, but I don't think that's the point of these verses. And I agree with the arguments of the majority who say, no, Micah's comments are intended to indicate that the Messiah is not going to be an upstart or an unexpected uh, ruler or an afterthought in God's program. Rather, the Messiah who comes is going to be the one that God had in mind from the ancient days. This ruler is going to be the one whose coming God had promised from of old. In fact, he's going to be the offspring who would crush the serpent's head as God had promised way back in Genesis 3.15. And I think, I think our minds should immediately turn to this promise from of old when we get to verse 3. Because in verse 3, God promises that he will give Israel up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. See, it will, it will be a woman giving birth to her offspring that will spark the fulfillment of the hope that God had promised, just as he had said to Eve so many years before in Genesis 3.15. So God is going to fulfill his promises from of old, but of course his promise to Adam and Eve wasn't the only promise from of old he was going to fill. He's also going to fulfill his promises to David that he had made hundreds of years before, and God renews those promises as well. Micah announces that this ruler for Israel is going to come from Bethlehem. 
Now, Micah himself tells us that Bethlehem is a very small and insignificant place. In fact, if you were to turn back to the book of Joshua, Joshua describes the boundaries of Judah's territories and it lists 144 towns that will come in Judah's territory. And Bethlehem doesn't make the list. It's included in the summary comment and the villages with them. And most likely, if you were an Israelite, the only reason you would have been familiar with Bethlehem, if you weren't from that area, was because it was the hometown of David. David was from Bethlehem. So as soon as Micah announces a ruler coming from Bethlehem, the ears of the attentive Israelite would perk up and think of the house of David, an offspring coming from David's line. But God also reiterates the specifics of his promise to David in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, you will find there that he promises that this ruler will be great to the ends of the earth and will stand and shepherd the people of Israel so that they shall dwell secure and have peace. And immediately you should hear key words from God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. That is exactly what God had promised to David, that through his offspring his name would be like the great ones in the earth and that God would make Israel dwell in everlasting security and rest through his promised offspring. God's repeating those terms here. So these promises to David are also renewed. And you have to wonder, don't you, if you were an Israelite here in the 8th century BC, if the passage of time would have led you to ask whether God's promises were still true and would still be fulfilled. I mean, we make this assumption all the time. If, if in the month of June, as summer's beginning, I say to my kids, this summer, I'm going to take you to Hershey Park. And then summer goes along and you go through June and you go through July and you go through August and the third week of August rolls around and there's only three days left till school starts. My kids are probably going to be asking, wait a second, is he going to fulfill these promises of going to Hershey Park or not? Or, or if a husband promises his wife that this weekend he will look into that clanking noise in the dryer and dinner time on Sunday rolls around and the clanking noise is still in the dryer and no action's been taken, the wife might be excused for wondering whether the promise is going to be fulfilled. Here in Israel, 300 years have passed since God had made his promises to David and thousands of years had passed since his promise to Adam and Eve and perhaps there might be a, a question in the midst of this Assyrian invasion Is God going to fulfill these promises? But here God comes through the prophet Micah, not just to foretell a rescue from Assyria in the 8th century BC, but to raise Israel's eyes to the future and to reiterate those promises from of old, the very details of hope he'd promised to his people, to remind them they are still in effect. God is still going to fulfill them in his time. In other words, according to Micah 5, time has not canceled God's promises. It has only brought the day of their fulfillment closer. He is still going to fulfill his word. So God renews his old promises to Israel in this passage, but he also adds new details of what to expect. And that's what I want to turn to look at next. To begin, the very fact that God's promised ruler would come from Bethlehem was a new detail. 
It was certainly plausible and maybe even likely that a a ruler from David's line would be born in Jerusalem. That's where many of the kings ruled. That's where many of the king's children would have been born. But Micah says, no, it's not Jerusalem. It's this small village five miles south of Jerusalem that is going to be the birthplace of the Messiah. Of course, this point wasn't lost on Israel because you'll remember that 700 years after this, when the wise men come to Jerusalem and come to Herod's court and say, where's the king of Israel going to be born? The scribes look back to this passage and say, the Messiah is coming in Bethlehem. That was a new detail here. Micah also zeroes in on the birth of a baby as the turning point of Israel's hope here. You see that there again in verse 3. And in one sense, this might be obvious. After all, the focus of God's promises had been on offspring. It was an offspring promised to Adam and Eve. He promised, uh, made a promise to Abraham and his offspring. The focus of God's promise to David had been offspring. So maybe the birth of a, a baby is not uh, surprising as the dawning of hope. But in another sense, Micah seems to specifically identify the birth of this baby as a turning point for Israel. And I think the prophet Isaiah does exactly the same thing. Isaiah 9, 7, which we hear often at Christmas time, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government's going to be on his shoulders. He's going to be the one who will be known as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Or, or maybe you think of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where God says that the sign that he was stepping in to fulfill his promises would be a virgin who would conceive and bring forth a son whose name would be Emmanuel. Then in verse 4, Micah declares that this coming ruler, this Messiah, would be uniquely and closely tied to the name and the majesty of the Lord. This verse closely ties this Messiah with the Lord himself. The ruler is going to shepherd Israel in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. In other words, just as the Lord was the one who was the shepherd of Israel in Psalm 23 and Isaiah 40 verse 11, so this ruler is now going to stand and shepherd the people of God. And he's going to do it with the Lord's own strength. And more than that, this ruler's name and the majesty of the name of the Lord are going to be intimately tied together. So each of these details ties the coming of the Messiah more and more closely to the Lord himself. So these are details that Micah brings out about the promise of the coming Messiah. Now, why are these details important? Well, these details are important for two reasons. First, these details give God's people markers to identify the Messiah when he shows up. See, God's promises are not vague predictions that could be fulfilled in all sorts of different ways. God is very different than the uh, oracle of Delphi in Greece. See, the oracle of Delphi was famous for making vague predictions that could be fulfilled in multiple different ways. King Croesus found that out when he came to the oracle of Delphi to ask if he should attack the Persian Empire. And the oracle of Delphi gave a famous response If he goes to war, Croesus will destroy a great empire. Unfortunately, Croesus didn't take the time to ask which empire would be destroyed. 
And the prophecy could conveniently be fulfilled in multiple ways, but for poor Croatius, it turned out that his empire was the one that was destroyed when he attacked and was soundly defeated. God's prophecies and promises are not like the Oracle of Delphi. They are not vague. They are specific and narrow. And when Jesus shows up on the scene claiming to be the Messiah, God has given us ahead of time specific markers for us to check and see if he is telling the truth. Was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Check. Was he born to a virgin? Check. Was he called Emmanuel? Check. That's the very name Gabriel gave to him when he announced his coming to Mary. Was his birth a turning point of hope? Check. Think of how the Holy Spirit told Simeon that he would not die until he saw the consolation of Israel arrive. But then God revealed to Simeon that that promise was fulfilled when the baby Jesus was brought to the temple to be circumcised at eight days old. So again, check. Does Jesus come to shepherd Israel in the Lord's strength? Check. Is his name intimately tied to the majesty of the name of the Lord? Check. So we go through these details and we see God's prophecies fulfilled in great detail which enable us to verify the claims of Christ makes and say, yes, he is speaking the truth. God told us ahead of time and they have been fulfilled specifically. But in addition, not only do these help us see God's fulfillment, but these details confirm God's sovereign faithfulness in a way that magnifies his glory and also gives our hearts reason to trust him. No man could possibly make this kind of specific prediction and then orchestrate history over hundreds and even thousands of years to bring it all to pass. But God can. God who sits above the circle of the years, speaking words of assurance to his people and then fulfilling them centuries later exactly in the way that he said would happen, that kind of sovereign God is worthy of our praise and our trust. Of course, there's certainly been efforts to deny these claims. You will read some who will say, well, virgin didn't really mean virgin. Or others might say, we're just reading the the Jesus we want to into the Old Testament prophecies, but they didn't really mean that. Or they might say, the apostles came up with Jesus' birth story later and wrote it in a way to fulfill these promises. We don't have time this morning, but if we did, we would find quickly that all of these claims fail to stand up to logical scrutiny, linguistic study, or historical examination. The only reasonable explanation for what we read in the Old Testament and find in the New Testament is that God has demonstrated a perfect 100% track record of sovereignly doing everything he said he would do exactly in his time to redeem his people. And that explanation lifts up the holy glory of the Lord and his name and his faithfulness and show that he is so worthy of our praise. And his fulfillment of these specific prophecies like these in Micah 5 give us more than sufficient reason to trust him and his word and his promises.
And in fact, if we could even carry it a step further, would you notice that Israel is to remember this coming ruler from Bethlehem in the moment when their city is under siege and being attacked, when enemies are marching on their land and the name of the Lord is being insulted? In other words, these words are given to God's people for a time when it looks most like God has abandoned his people. When it looks least likely that God will be able to bring his words to pass. And it's precisely in that moment of grief and confusion that Micah urges Israel to find comfort in sustaining grace from the guarantee of future hope. And that's been God's pattern again and again. And his character, which has fulfilled these promises, is a rock-solid hope for us too, no matter what we're facing now as we look ahead with assurance for what he will do. So God has renewed his ancient promises. He's given more details to these promises. And in doing so, he's lifted up his name and given us great reason to trust him. But finally, let's look at the remainder of this passage, verses 5 through 15, where Micah summarizes the blessings that will come under the rule of this king. In verse 5, we find that this coming ruler will be Israel's peace. Peace here is that Hebrew word shalom, which brings to mind not just a state of calm or the lack of chaos, but, but that wholeness or rightness, that unthreatened state in which all things are exactly as God intended them to be. It's a state that's pictured by the green pastures and still waters and paths of righteousness in Psalm 23. It's a peace that will be brought about when one stands to shepherd God's flock in the strength of the Lord. It's a peace that is the result of the security and rest that this coming ruler from Bethlehem will bring about. It's the state that the angels announced at Jesus' birth, declaring peace on earth, goodwill to men. Verse 7 tells us, though, that Israel won't enjoy these blessings alone. Instead, the remnant of Jacob, that is that portion of God's people who respond to the Lord in faith and obedience, that remnant of Jacob will become a source of blessing for many peoples who live around the remnant. Micah uses the language of life in abundance, talking about dew and showers. See, in in Israel, the daily dew, the morning dew, and the spring and the fall rains were necessary to bring about growth and living things. And so throughout Scripture, the dew and the rains were were referred to as a source of life and blessing. And in the same way here, we're told that the remnant of Israel will become the watering source of life and blessing for the nations around them, for those who will respond in faith and obedience, that they too will experience the blessings of peace and security under the ruler from Bethlehem if they turn to him. Of course, we have to look to verses 8 and 9 as well, because here we find that Israel won't just be a blessing, it will also be a messenger of punishment, like a lion tearing its prey and treading down where there is none to deliver. For those who reject these blessings, for those who reject the message of hope that the remnant of Jacob brings, judgment awaits with no one to deliver. And so for the second week in a row, we're faced with this twin vision of salvation and judgment, of blessing and wrath. 
that begs us to consider where we stand and whether we have received and trusted and obeyed this ruler from Bethlehem and the hope that he brings through Israel. But then in verses 10 through 14, God describes a beautiful and great blessing that he will give to Israel when the promised ruler comes. And to understand the significance of these verses, we have to remember a bit and reflect for a moment about Israel's history. God had called Abraham to walk before him and had promised to be God to his descendants after him. God had called Israel out of Egypt and into a a covenant with him to dwell in that relationship with him. God had rescued Israel from the nations and given them a king after his own heart. And yet this fellowship between the Lord and his people continued to be broken by sin. Again and again, Israel's sin violated the terms of the covenant and exchanged God's blessings for lies and wickedness and idolatry. So a reflective Israelite who's thinking back on their history and looking forward to this hope should immediately be asking the question, but how is this future ruler going to maintain peace and security forever given our track record of sin and idolatry, a track record that demonstrates our fallen depravity? How is this going to be possible And it's in that context that God adds his promises in verses 10 through 14. Promises that he will take away and banish from their midst all the things which have caused Israel to break covenant with them. In verses 10 and 11, he will banish the horses, chariots, cities, and strongholds. And we might read that and think, well, wait a second, that sounds more like a curse than a blessing. Why would God banish Their strongholds in cities and horses and chariots. Well, it's because those were the things that Israel began to rely on instead of the Lord. And God is going to banish the material resources and earthly possessions and securities that Israel turned to instead of the Lord. Then in in verse, uh, verse 12, we find out that he's going to banish the alternate sources of information, truth, or assurance that Israel was looking to the sorceries and fortune tellers. And then in verses 13 and 14, we find that he's going to banish the false gods that Israel worshipped and looked to for protection and aid. In fact, this list is the exact same list that Isaiah identifies in Isaiah 2, 6 through 8, as the sins his people had committed which separated them from God. Isaiah identifies fortune tellers, wealth, horses, and chariots, and idols as the, the things that broke covenant between Israel and God. Of course, I think it would only take a moment's reflection to acknowledge that these same categories pull on our hearts as well. We are tempted into self-reliance upon wealth and material resources for our security and comfort. We are tempted by alternate sources of information and truth and comfort and assurance. And our hearts are pulled by idols that would capture our time and our attention and our desire and our worship. And so just like Israel, we need to be asking the question, but how can we have the hope of eternal security and fellowship with the Lord knowing our hearts? But in these verses, God promises that he is going to completely cleanse his people and their land from all these things that threatened his covenant with them so that they will never cease to dwell in his presence. When I read these verses, 
Scripture's promises and the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of His Holy Spirit come to my mind. I think of Ezekiel 36 where the Lord promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. In fact, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then when we turn to the work of Jesus Christ, I think of Ephesians 5, where Paul describes Christ's work as giving himself up for the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I think of that great promise in 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul declares, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you hear these promises from God's word? promises God makes again and again to all those who come to him through faith in Jesus that by his blood shed for them and that by the work of his spirit he will cleanse us completely so that we might be holy and without blemish and so secure us in his presence forever and isn't this what we so desperately need don't we need this cleansing And don't we know that even as we have come to Christ, even as we've seen the beginning of this process, we're still looking ahead to its fulfillment when Christ will completely cleanse us. And what a hope we find here in Micah 5, a hope offered to us through Jesus Christ, that ruler born in Bethlehem. So may we come to him and find the cleansing and the hope of salvation that we need. Well, we come to an end here this morning. In fact, we come to an end of this brief Advent series. And let me remind you of our goal. Our goal was to increase our anticipation for the coming of Christ. And as he concludes his comments on Micah chapter 5, commentator Stephen Um asks this question. He says, how does this passage of God's word make you more excited as you look ahead to the next Christmas? And I want to encourage us to ask that question this week. As we approach Christmas, we have reviewed the promises of God that he has perfectly kept. And we have also reviewed the promises of God that we're still waiting for him to keep. So having reviewed those promises and seen his faithfulness and remembered what's ahead, does that not make us more excited for his coming and what we are remembering and celebrating this week? And may we remember it in patient confidence, for he is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word, your word which gives us that assurance of how you will act and what you will do for all those who come to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you give us that assurance? Would you give us that hope? Would you pique our anticipation and our eager expectation for your coming. Father, magnify your name this Christmas season and comfort our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.